Hi everyone, welcome to Articulate to our third episode of season two. I continue to talk to remarkable artists who inspire me in their pursuit of finding their authentic voice within their practice. I have the pleasure of having one such artist as a guest today, Jai Chohan, whose unique and expressive paintings are, as she puts it, a painterly exploration of displacement, conflict and desire. Jai is an Indian artist, Indian-born British artist, and she studied at the UCL Slade School of Fine Art and is currently based in Manchester. Her paintings are sculptural, thick with the texture of impasto paint, giving her portraits a certain gravitas. The deliberate use of a vivid color palette presents the female body as a physical and psychological presence. Highlighted by simplified geometric areas of color and lines and shifting viewpoints. Anonymous figures observed in the city are complemented by portrayal of familiar people, including herself as self-portraits, using a combination of observation, memory and technology. In a time when it is dangerous to be in the physical nearness of our friends, the sensitive touch embodied in a good painting is a genuine gift. They embody something of the human intelligence that made them. They are the products of care embedded in a, in a surface through touch. They speak to us as physical bodies and remind us of how that physicality connects us to the people around us and to the larger world. Jayat thinks of her practice as an act of zoning into the process, beginning with several um, making several layers of mark making. She then invests her time in the reworking of each and every individual picture by erasing an image after another image, negotiating with time and the image as an act of searching and finding a visual crystallization of ideas. Whether she uses thick impasto of pigments or thin washes that fill the canvas, whatever the method, it makes us as the viewer lose sense of all time. Her genre of painting reflects her transcultural aesthetic influences, mirroring her identity as a British artist with origins in India. Jai's work has been exhibited widely in the UK and internationally in solo and group exhibitions. Some of her, uh, some of the prestigious institutions in the UK include the Tate Liverpool, Barbican London, Icon Birmingham, Arnold Feeney Bristol, among many, many other galleries and institutions. Recent solo exhibitions um, include the Home and Unhome Contemporary Art Practice in the Art Practice in the Post-Pandemic Context in China in December 2020, and also the Art Ankara Contemporary Art Fair in Turkey also in 2020. And some of the others, um, many others include Asia Triennial Manchester 2018 and the Liverpool Biennale 2014. So I'm it's such an honor and a pleasure to welcome you, Jai, and uh, thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest on my podcast. Hi, Jai. <laughs> Hi, hello. Um, first of all, I'd really like to thank you so very, very much. Um, I'm really deeply appreciative uh, for your attention and also, you know, for this valuable dialogue with you as a fellow artist. So thank you so very much. Oh yeah, um, I totally echo the feeling and um, yeah, thanks again. So let's start. Um, 
uh, I know that you uh, were very young. I think you were eight or nine. I remember reading when you moved from India with your family to the UK. So uh, why don't you tell us about um, your childhood a little bit and also your resonances um, that influenced you as an artist, as why did you um, decide to become an artist and what was it, what were the influences growing up? Yeah. Um, yeah, I was nearly 10 when I came oh, to I Britain. Mm -hmm. And um, the arrival in Britain so coincided with the time when you have to start growing up. Um, in India, I didn't see any art in terms of galleries and museums. Um, but before coming to Britain, I had spent a summer holiday in with relatives in Chandigarh, mm -hmm. in the hot plains of Punjab with the Himalayas visible on the far distant horizon. And Chandigarh, of course, was designed by the French architect Le Corbusier in India's yes. post-independence drive for modernity. So that was in some ways, you know, exposure to art. But of course, as a child life for me, then seemed an endless carefree playtime, playing with mud and sticks and leaves and whatever. But, you know, even things like arranging beads or making a pattern with them is kind of practicing art. And also as well as seeing the modernist architecture of Chandigarh, I had seen old buildings like old forts as in Batinda, where I actually um, was living before. Um, my parents took us to see the Taj Mahal before we came to Britain. Nice. Um, and then there were the colours and patterns of clothes and the art of how things are made, such as earthenware clay pots. And I remember seeing a film in the open air and festivals and all kinds of things. So, you know, there was an exposure to aesthetic things. Um, and coming to Britain, it was very difficult for the family. For some years, we were living in drastically reduced, you know, accommodation in sort of uh, rented shared houses to begin with. Mm. And there was an awareness of racism, which I hadn't been aware of at all before that. Um, for example, people wouldn't sell um, black or Asian people houses, white people wouldn't sell them houses. I think their law was passed making that illegal. And then I remember um, our family put up a family of um, Ugandan Asians that we got through the Indian Workers Association in Southall. So that was, you know, another kind of um, reminder of racism in not just in Britain, but globally. Um, and this was in the 70s, isn't it? Uh, yes, I think so, yes. So, um, I mean, Sigmund Freud talks about how um, your young, early childhood really shapes your personality. And I think probably that is so and I think one of the things that has shaped, shaped me is that my very young childhood in, in India was by and large really very happy and um, pleasurable. So I think I maybe try and carry that through when I'm in my studio. I really, you know, enjoy making paintings. But the, you know, coming to Britain was kind of uh, quite a disjuncture in life. Mm -hmm. And 
just remembering Sigmund Freud again, he he writes about the ideas of home and unhome. And that these ideas can refer to a place or an idea that is a source of nurture or comfort and compassion, or they could be about alienation or unease and conflict. So one can feel either a sense of being at ease or of alienation in any physical place, such as a country or a personal home or within the self or in any conceptual space, such as the cultural or the economic or the political. So that, and then the migrant experience sort of ties into all these kinds of um, ideas. Mm. So the migrant experience is stereotypically thought of as, you know, people who work very hard to make a new life. Mm. And it's a stereotype, but I think there's a lot of truth in it. And um, so I found myself part of a whole lot of people who were straddling different cultures, but that straddling soon became normal. So it was normal after very, very soon to be living in a mixture of communities and cultures. Um, my first view of art in terms of um, you know fine art was of paintings which I saw when I visited the National Gallery. And that was when we first came to Britain on a kind of sightseeing tour. So we were doing London, you know, this is the Trafalgar Square. And then, oh, there's a big building there. Let's go in there. What is it? And I think looking back, it must have had quite a profound impact on me. You know, I was just absolutely amazed at seeing these paintings by artists. I didn't know who they were, but now I know there were artists like Titian. They were so different, you know, these Renaissance paintings, the clothes, the colours glowing, the size of them. And then one painting really sticks in my mind. I didn't know who the artist was at the time, was Monet's uh, Water Lilies. Um, And Strangely enough, I saw the same painting three or four years ago, and this time it was Tate Modern. People had taken it from Trafalgar Square to to Tate Modern by the Thames, and they'd hung it opposite some Rothko paintings. They were making some point about colour and so on. Mm -hmm. But it was a fantastic painting where the middle of the painting seems to be almost coming apart. The brushworks are so loose, and it's kind of all over and it made me think of time the time it takes to create a painting the time you know they're old paintings that we're looking at now and I saw this painting so many years ago and then saw it again and it still looks fresh and then how you see the same painting and you're different years later but even if you see the same painting the next day it's different and sometimes I just think art is so amazing. You know, you could, I could spend a whole lifetime just studying a dozen paintings in the National Gallery, perhaps. There's so much there. So I think, um, certainly, I think seeing art in galleries is inspiring. But as a child, I had very few um, visits to galleries, only two school trips, I think, to one was to the Hayward and one was to Tate Britain. Mm -hmm. 
and hardly any books on art. Well, um, I think there was a free book came with a toothpaste packet or something on Leonardo da Vinci. And I think I knew every single page. I thumbed it so many times. And I remember seeing reproductions of Picasso's painting of the child holding a ball that was in a corridor at school. And I was also a, an absolutely avid reader. I was always going to the library, borrowing books. You know, um, I remember getting a book out of, um, I think, Anna Karenina by Tolstoy and looked up and there was a print of Degas' paintings of the dancers on the wall. So all these things, you know, leave leave a real mark. And then my teachers at school I was so lucky it was my favorite lesson and um, I remember one of the teachers made a really nice comment about some homework I had done about the spontaneity I had shown using some paints so I think for months afterwards you know for many nights I stayed up while the rest of the family were asleep with my four or five pots of post bed trying to recreate I'm going to be spontaneous now and of course it's impossible when you plan to be spontaneous but anyway it, I clearly was obsessed with with paint and all that kind of thing Aww. so but you know I had no plans to be an artist you know at that time I was very lucky I think um I think we were drilled um by my parents that we had to have, as women, as a woman, you know, when we when I'd be grown up, had to have some economic independence. Mm. Uh, for example, I mean, um, my father was the only child or in his family who had gone to a university. Right. All his uh, the rest of the from a farming background in a village, and my mother was the only um, person in. No, she wasn't the only person, actually, but she was one of the few uh, women who had um, gone to a university and, and become a teacher. Her sister had done the same thing. And so, and I, I know that my both my grandmothers, they were illiterate. And, it, and I've heard stories of one grandmother who was brilliant at embroidery, another grandmother who was brilliant at making the clay ovens, you know, in the, in the village. Mm -hmm. But they had no options to go beyond the domestic sphere. And also so many stories of how women get mistreated once they are married and they have no option. No, they had no option traditionally, but to put up with it. Mm because they couldn't go back to their parental house because they'd be uh, kind of frowned on, um, yeah. uh, frowned on seen as a uh, lack of honour. And plus the economically as well, they wouldn't want to be a burden. So, so many people, women put up with so many bad things. So it was really drilled on us that whatever we did, we, even if we might end up with somebody very wealthy or whatever, we still had to be able to stand on our own feet. So, so not going, not having some career wasn't ever an option. And then when I got into the Slade, I had a really good teacher. I didn't even know art colleges existed, but he said, why don't you apply? It's a good college. And I had no idea it was a special place. I just went along one afternoon, you know, had an afternoon off school that day, mm -hmm. got a train, took my, 
you know, little folder with my homeworks and things in it and or whatever work I had done and, and got in. So that was great. Um, and then the only thing was it was a four year course. So that was the only sticking point. But then they said, well, it's OK, it doesn't matter. Mm. Um, and they didn't worry about the fact that it was an art college. They realised I could teach mm. afterwards. It was a degree like many other degrees. Yes. So I could become an art teacher right. in a school. So that was fine. Um, I think that was an idea that came more after I left college, to be to be honest. Mm. Um, I think the 70s, 80s, it was, you know, the National Front were around doing marches and people were always quite careful about their physical safety in certain kinds of public places. And sadly, I think it it's got a little bit worse after the Brexit kind of mm. stuff was going on I think recently um but at the Slade it was just um I was so excited just to be at an art school and be in London um it you know trying to assert myself as an Indian was wasn't really on my mind I was just so thrilled to be in that environment um, with other artists and with these amazing kind of tutors and seeing exhibitions and, you know, it's so exciting being in being in London. It was just amazing. So, um, so, but I did notice, however, that I was, I can't remember another, I mean, to be crude, there might have been artists from non-European backgrounds there, but I didn't come across any. And to be very crude, I couldn't remember anyone with another brown face when I was there. Um, I know William Coldstream, who talked there, uh, you know, he's quite a socialistic. I think that it always had an ethos of trying to have people from diverse backgrounds. But in, in actual fact, it was quite an, an elitist uh, place, yeah. in actual fact. Yeah. Um, so, and it had very few students who, who got in in those days. I think there were only 12 people. But I think in recent years, it's been changing um, quite a lot. Um, I think under the current, uh, I mean, strangely enough, I, I happen to be um, an external examiner there now. Um, so I've got to know a little bit more about how they really are trying to decolonize the curriculum, you know, and they're really very serious about it. And they've made making some really good, you know, inroads in it. The current director, Kieran Reed, he's mm. really making sure that it's at the forefront of, of these things. Right. Um, so it's a huge change at the moment. I attended a couple of lectures there just very recently, one by Hamad Nasser, um, uh, a curator and another by another curator, Ming Tianpo, and she's researching the history of the Slade and seeing how people from international backgrounds studied there. And I didn't know until I heard her lecture, but artists like Vivan Sundaram, for example, studied at the Slade. There was quite a good history of them, but sadly I wasn't probably too busy sort of partying and doing things like that as a student it didn't really register on me yeah it was Ming Tianpo and the lecture I believe is available to see on the Paul Mellon Centre website right. it was a public lecture so mm, um, yes yes 
you know, people can see it. But so there, there was actually a really good history that at the time I was not aware of. But at the time, I was just thrilled to be meeting artists among the staff, you know, people like Noel Forster, Ewan Uglo, Patrick George, oh God, uh, Rita Donna, Tess Jarrett, and amazing visitors, you know, Joseph Boyce. It was just amazing. These are just people <laughs> you read about in books. Oh, they're like, they're I know. Like, like and I actually gods. asked Joseph Boyce a question at the lecture. <laughs> which I was such a very, an extremely shy person. So it must have really affected me to put my little hand up and ask a very silly question. I oh expect it was silly. But, uh, and also, you know, Susan Collins, who's there, and, and Sharon Morris, who's there currently, you know, they're doing lots of really fantastic things, um, promoting the transcultural. And Andrew Stahl, who's, who's there yes, as well. Yes. So um, it's really good. Yeah, I'm in touch with uh, quite a few of them, Andrew and Sharon, so it's and and others as well. So it's really nice. I think probably there is now, and there's a signature sort of um, uh, fit themes in the sense that I've always been fascinated by the human form, uh, portraiture, um, people, looking at people, and so on. And at the Slade, I did all different kinds of work, you know, as most, a lot of students yeah, do. But towards the end, I was painting pictures of people in cities, crowds on the tube and that sort of thing. And influenced by um, express, German Expressionism, I'd seen a wonderful exhibition of Edward Munch's work. So I was very influenced by all that kind of, you know, work. Um, and... After I left the Slade, um, true, you know, keeping with what my parents had expected of me, I did a teacher training course in Manchester. I ended up in Manchester for various personal reasons. Mm -hmm. And then I taught in a school for a year. And during that year, I really realised I didn't want to do that anymore um, because I really wanted to be an artist because I was always kind of burning the candle at both ends, you know. Um, I got, I became, I became friends with lots of people at the art school in Manchester. So I was starting to go out in the evenings with them, going to the, you know, to pubs and clubs and all sorts of things, painting late into the night and then getting up early to go to work. And I nice. thought, I, I really wanted to be an artist. So I, I just resigned from that post, much to my, um, parents horror and then I was not that they were particularly wealthy or anything but even if they had been I was too proud to ever ask for any money so I had a few years of being really really hard up living in quite a rough part of Manchester and just trying to make art and having a few part-time jobs as a supply teacher now and then um, but gradually I just through sheer luck I got some work in a further education college. But it was so precarious, you know, you never knew whether you'd be employed in a few weeks time or not. So it was all quite, quite difficult, really. But then I was quite lucky. Um, I saw a, uh, an ad advert for a competition, and the prize was a solo exhibition. And I was just lucky I actually won the um, competition so I had my first solo exhibition at 
older Mark Gallery, although by then somebody else had all, already been to my um, little tiny room I lived in and seen some of my drawings and had also offered me another solo shows. And then after that, I had several solo shows that were offered to me in lots of different places. So mm. things got started. And the solo show in Oldham also helped me to get a, a job in at what was then called Liverpool Polytechnic. Right. Um, and again, there was a Slade connection. Uh, for some reason, I ended up at a private view. I don't know how I even heard of it. And it was a private view of work by Rita Donner and Tess Jarre, who had been tutors at the Slade. So I went to that and they said, oh, hi, hello, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I live here now. Anyway, I sent um, Tess Jarre a, a poster of my exhibition at Oldham and she very kindly put it on the wall at the Slade uh, in the foyer, which I didn't know she had done that. But then when I got a phone call from somebody at Liverpool Polytechnic, they'd been to a private view there, the degree shows. And some they must have mentioned, we're looking for some part-time staff. Right. And she said, well, there's somebody there, you know, that's her poster. So <laughs> that's how I ended that's up how... having a part-time job at Liverpool. It was very precarious at first, but it got me started. I was very lucky because I got off the ground with paintings, which were, I yeah, I forgot to mention that when I left the Slade, I had been doing paintings of people, crowds in cities and so on. Um, and then I, when I was teaching in schools and so on, I mean, I lost my connection with what I was doing. So I kind of just was doing still lives. And it wasn't that I particularly wanted to do that. I was just kind of keeping my hand in. And then I did quite a lot of self-portraits. And then I kind of found struggling to know what to paint. Then we moved to... I was about to give up, actually, Thought, thinking, well, I'm not getting anywhere. I might as well just get another full-time job and just carry on. But then I moved to a house which had an absolutely wonderful garden, really huge. We were so lucky. And, um, and as I was about to give up, I found an old, some old bits of hardboard which had just ex ab almost abstract landscapes on them that I had done at the Slade and I'd been inspired to do them with my memory of landscapes that I'd seen in India and I thought right well I really enjoyed them so I just worked like on on top of them right. should have kept the original painting really but anyway no matter and I was inspired by the garden by the forms the kind of light and the movement of the plants and you know leaves and so on so it was, there was nothing in the work that would make people think it was Asian or American or European or anything. So I was lucky that um, people showed my work without me having to have this kind of, um, you know, I'm an Asian, British yeah, Asian artist mean, hat on. Yeah. Um, so that was good. And then I noticed that... Um, you know, quite a lot of people were taking on, projecting their work through having that identity or the other way around, having that identity was a very strong motivation for them to do the work that they were doing. So probably works both ways. And at the same time, um, 
my work also, I, I came up, um, I was working in um, Liverpool, John Moores, and I really became interested in finding out more about Indian art because I hadn't studied it as part, you know, formally mm. um, as a student. So I applied for a, a research grant from the Arts Council England to present six public lectures. I, I probably would never do that now, but when you're young, you kind of don't think of the enormity of what you've said you're doing. But I sort of just like, yeah, I'll do that. So of course, they I got the funding. And then so I had to stage six public lectures on Indian painting, Indian sculpture. I should have called it South Asian. I hadn't learned the proper political, you know, kind of correct terminology then. I, I just called it Indian painting, Indian sculpture. I think there was one on Indian film, wow. Indian craft, Indian, oh, I can't remember what they were now, literature perhaps, and contemporary Indian art. So I knew absolutely zilch about all these things. So I was, you know, going so to the library, you, getting oh, out books, did you visit going India to exhibitions. And did you visit India um, for the research and stuff? Yeah, for research, which was fantastic. And also, while I, in those days, there was no internet or anything like that. I made these posters which just on a photocopying machine and sent them to whoever I could think of and posted them here and there. So my my now very long-term friend, Al Nurmitha, saw one somewhere. So I just got a phone call one day saying, hi, I'm Al Nurmitha. I've just come back from Baroda in India, which I'd never heard of anyway, from doing a fellowship there. And he had taught under Anish Kapoor at uh, Wolverhampton. Oh, sorry, he had studied under him and he'd done a fellowship there. So can I come round and bring you some books and catalogues? I said, yeah, absolutely. So about half an hour later, I had a pile of books, you know, catalogues by artists like Nilima Sheikh, you know, all kinds of artists. So I gave myself a kind of crash course and um, and ended up also showing with artists, um, as well as having solo exhibitions at galleries like the Commonwealth Institute in London. I had solo shows at the Icon Gallery in Birmingham, on um, all, all kinds of places. Um, but I also was in a group show at the Horizon Gallery. I had a solo show at the Horizon Gallery in London as well. I think it was run by some people connected with the Indian Arts Council in the UK, something like that. Mm. But it's a tiny place. But when the the famous um, exhibition, The Other Story, which was um, curated by Rashid Areen, took place, mm. which had no South Asian women artists in it whatsoever. Uh, so to redress that, uh, the Horizon Gallery staged a group show of South Asian women artists. So I was in a series of four exhibitions they put on, on each one, had four South Asian women artists in it. So I became more and more kind of um, um, well, no. knowledgeable bit yeah. by bit. And the Arnolfini Gallery staged an exhibition called The Circular Dance, and I think that toured. And that was curated by a fantastic person, Nima Puvaya-Smith, Dr. Nima Puvaya-Smith. And she was actually a curator at uh, the Cartwright Hall in Bradford. Mm. 
And Cartwright Hall in, Hall in Bradford has was so forward thinking and ahead of its time. It established a special exhibition collection, mm. collecting works by South Asian artists from Asia and also South Asian diaspora artists from the UK. So they bought some of my work and they've got a really good collection there. I think it's probably unique in the UK and it was very ahead of its time. A few years ago, you know, Imran Qureshi did a wonderful uh, residency there and a show there. And I went to hear his lecture that he gave there. So, you know, I think it's a lot, there's a lot has happened but it's, it, it doesn't receive the kind of publicity. I've had publications in the past. I've had um, essays published in uh, exhibition catalogues, in, um, in books of uh, conference proceedings, such as Triennial City. Um, that was based on an Asia Triennial Manchester um, conference series. Um, such as a solo show at Victoria Gallery and Museum. Um, I had a solo show at the Lowry next to, alongside Boop and Karka's solo retrospective show. So that's a catalogue. So I've had quite a lot of publications. So this is the next one. Um, It's based on uh, my two exhibitions I staged for Asia Triennial Manchester in 2018. Um, A traditional um, exhibition with 12 large paintings at Gallery Oldham and also um, a show at Home which is a really big um, art centre in the middle of Manchester uh, where I staged a, a studio. I created my own studio and had some finished work there, some work which I started there which I've now completed, hence the delay with publishing the book. Um, and um, I had dancers coming in, life models coming in, oh, yeah, nice. performing, yeah. and I was painting, and people could come and paint and join in. Yeah. There was music playing, so it was really nice. Um, so I had the luxury of this, my sort of ideal huge studio space for, for a week, and it was absolutely fantastic. So the book has um, quite a few other authors um, contributing to it. Um, um, there's uh, Rina Arya. She's written something on my work. She's a really, you know, well-known um, art historian. She's written a fantastic, huge book on Francis Bacon's work. Um, Graham Gillock, who's a, a sociologist, but he's a wonderful writer. He's written something on my work. And Alno Mitha and Andrew Stahl, um, they've both interviewed me. And Adam Carr, who's um, who's a curator, he wrote, he's written about the show at home. Mm-hmm. So there's quite a few con- contributors to the book. In the late 80s, I think, I got to know a dancer called Bishaka Saka, who does... And uh, also poets, a poet called Levi Tafari, who's um, who's, who's oh, yeah, kind of, uh, of, of African descent, yeah, and I yeah, painted yeah. a portrait of them as well, much many years later. Yes. And I did 
some projects with them, bringing them into the art college so people could join in and dance from them. And I also did a project with some Kathakali dancers mm. once. But the collaboration with Bishaka has been quite long term and, you know, every now and then a few years we've done something. So at home, she suggests, you know, suggested bringing in um, another dancer, Kali Chandrasegaram, who's um, uh, also, you know, um, a dancer, uh, I think, trained in Malaysia mm-hmm. but and they're trained in forms of Indian dance but they're really experimental they're, and the choreographers as well so in the exhibition I said just do whatever you like so they were improvising to music that I had playing and they were happy to do that I said do you want your own music they said no we'll just improvise with whatever's happening so they did so they were improvising to Chopin piano music to tango you know, piazzolas, music, and it was great. And people could draw from them or just look, do whatever they like. It was the same with the life models. They came and posed a male model, a female model in the nude, in a kind of space with lots of sari drapes. And it wasn't a class or anything. It was just, I work from a combination of um, observation from uh, memory and, um, and sometimes, you know, from um, photographs and, you know, and I draw a lot as well. Um, and the starting point is always some idea. And the exciting thing is that as soon as you make a mark, you know, whatever idea or feeling or thought you've got kind of completely changes. Yeah. So that's so exciting, you know, about any kind of physical material that you're using, you know, whether it's sculpture, you know, like what you like yeah. you're engaged with physical materials for your sculptures. And with uh, painting, you know, painting a person, um, portraiture is very difficult, I think, because if it's a portrait, you kind of tr- want to get some kind of likeness. Mm. Um, whereas if, if it's not, a portrait it doesn't matter so much about the likeness but then you have to think what what is a likeness mm. sometimes something you know there's no such thing as any kind of particular look that's more real than any other look you know sometimes something that somebody might look very distorted or strange might actually be more like the experience of seeing somebody over a long period of time or seeing somebody in peripheral vision or at different angles than a kind of very formal you know um, clear kind of photographic kind of look so um, so I think the there is a possibly a symbolism in in some of the colors I use like the reds are very um, important I think in South Asian culture because they symbolize so many things including colors that young you know the brides wear it's very often you know some shade of red symbolizing all kinds of things such as fertility and vigor and so on Um, so but I think my paintings really very um, inspired by lots of different 
cultural things. Mm. Um, an artist from India visited my studio and she said my paintings could be of the Bengal school. Right. Uh, you know, another visitor found my use of colour reminded her of Rajasthan that she had recently returned to. Mm. And in terms of Indian art, I think I, I'm really inspired by the ancient sculpture and more than anything, if I was thinking of Indian art, you know, the way that volume and form and movement is expressed in the stone. And, you know, I think that is just mind blowingly amazing. Um, Yeah. And an Indian film, you know, um, I think Satyajit Rai is just the most amazing kind of iconic, fantastic, you know, Indian artist. Um, And of course, he, all arts kind of mixed, formed with so many mixtures, like even the ancient Indian sculpture, you know, Alexander the Great went there. Mm. Even in the other far side of China, they found influences from Greek sculptures being used in the Chinese sculptures, even other side of China, even DNA they found in Chinese populations coming from <laughs> Greece. So, and it goes backwards and forwards, you know, Satyajit Rai was influenced by Jean Renoir, who was the, I think, the grandson of um, Renoir, you know, the, the painter. Mm-hmm. So all these influences are completely, you know, mixed, mixed up. Um, so, I think as growing up, you know, not growing up, but I was really influenced by artists such as, um, you know, well, I went, uh, uh, to use an, an, an example, um, I went to the All Too Human exhibition, an exhibition called All Too Human at the Tate in 2018. Mm. And I just felt so at home in that exhibition. It had people who often call the School of London, you know, Frank Howard Barclay and Kossoff, uh, Francis Bacon, uh, Lucian Freud. Yeah. I felt completely, you know, at home among that group. And in the last room, for some reason, they had lost two rooms. They put lots of women artists um, together. So they had artists such as uh, Paula Rago, Cicely Brown, uh, Celia Paul, mm. uh, Lynette Yadambokai. Right. And I just felt, yeah, you know, I could I could be at home among these artists. Um, so that was, you know, the other side of the coin from the Indian influences. And of course, seeing exhibitions is just amazing. And just to, because you can't possibly, I can't possibly mention all the artists that influenced me because it would just take forever. Um, but if I just think of recent um, major exhibitions I've seen, that's a way of, you know, um, making it concise. You know, I've been absolutely bowled over by seeing the Picasso mm. exhibition at Tate Modern. I've seen his work many times and you can look at a Picasso now and even, you know, all these decades later, they can make so much contemporary art look utterly old-fashioned. He's so far ahead. And then the show of Auguste Rodin, the you know, it was amazing. 
And um, I've seen shows like that. Francesca Woodman mm. saw at the Tate Liverpool. So um, she's fantastic. So sad she she committed suicide so early. Um, and then um, and then there's Nasri Mohammadi, you know, an Indian artist, and she, you know, incidentally certainly didn't have to make work about her identity as an Indian artist. You know, you you get artists such as. Um, you know, uh, see here, Paul, for example, no one says yes, but she's not saying anything about being, you know, a British artist. Mm, <laughs> she's just doing a painting. Mm. But uh, so, you know, so many artists. So, uh, you know, Marlene Duma, another great artist. Oh, yes. And I've, I'm really sorry I've missed Artemisia Gentileschi's exhibition at the National Gallery. Partly, I just couldn't get to London mm. for it. But I did see some of her paintings in a show by Caravaggio at the National Gallery yeah. about three, four years ago. And it was just so fantastic seeing them, the actual work. You know, it, it, it's no comparison to seeing things on the internet or in books. It's going to be quite difficult, really, if it's a lot of stuff is going to be online now. I mean, I um, maybe fortunately, maybe that's the wrong word, but I'm not, you know, teaching anymore. I'm able, fortunately, to focus full time, you know, on my art practice. Um, but all I would say that as a painting, as a painter, you just have to enjoy the material. And if you can remind people how fantastic it is to see the actual paintings. It's such a completely different experience. You know, that's why people queue up around the block to see huge exhibitions, even though they could see them online or some of them online. You know, a lot of these blockbuster exhibitions bring paintings from different sources together. So it might be difficult to see all of them on online together and curated as well. But, um, so if just seeing the actual paintings is so different to seeing them in a book, you know, making work with physical materials is completely different. You know, so I I would just, if I was, had to tell anyone, I would just recommend people to feel free. You know, know a lot, look yeah. at a lot of things have lots of ideas, have lots of thoughts, have lots of memories, information. You have a lot of these in your head. In any case, we're jam-packed. Our brains are jam-packed with, overloaded, in fact, with so much stuff. So when you're in the studio or on a table or in a sketchbook, whatever, just go with the flow. Go with what the material is is nice. doing. Let let the painting, let let yourself just be the person who happens to be in the same space. So it's not you making the work. The work just makes itself. Uh, Alno Mitha, fortunately, he's curated, curating another exhibition with a curator from Delhi called uh, Monica Jane from Art Centric's space there of five artists, South A British South Asian artists, uh, five from India and five from Sri Lanka. So that's yeah. supposed to happen in in April. Yeah. I'm, I'm hoping it happens. It, on the whole, what most concerns me at the moment is actually progressing the painting itself. You know, I've through through the years, I've kind of 
um, honed my interests in my work to focusing on on the body, on mostly the female body, but also the male body, um, and how to present the body in some kind of physical and psychological movement in a kind of pictorial space. Um, And then other things are coming in, such as um, sort of experiences of the city, people, you know, experiences of the kind of transcultural, you could call it, um, coming in more overtly, not in a forced way, but quite um, just naturally uh, are appearing. So I'm, I'm really, you know, I'm trying to make figurative paintings to express of the human body to express a personal and intensely felt sensual experience and and about my thoughts about life. Um, I'm fascinated by making the paintings depicting the vitality of the nude body, portraying people I know, including a few large self-portraits on the go, also anonymous people I observe in the city and from news media. So... There are cross-cultural juxtapositions and mixtures that are apparent in my portrayals of people reflecting the diversity of cultural and racial diasporas within Britain, including intergenerational changes. Um, So I I hope that my paintings reflect the rich in-betweens of transcultural experience and the kind of aesthetic lineages that inform them. So... You know, as you said in your introduction, I'm um, I sort of developing my use of vibrant colour and the materiality, materiality of oil paint, you know, to sort of try and let it go through its usual cycle of going through a kind of fight where the image gets demolished and remade several times, you know, in a kind of magic-seeming process so that the final image gradually, you know, unfolds its, itself, creating kind of quite imaginative spaces, yeah. which are really quite abstracted. Um, so trying to show, you know, the interiority of, of human experience within an interior space that I create myself. Yeah. So our paintings often show an isolated figure in a room-like space, which functions as an arena for exploring, you know, existential themes such as love and sorrow, um, conflict and desire. Mm. And so I'm trying to create kind of various psychological tensions, showing symbioses of male and female. And sometimes the figure is quite focused. Sometimes it's quite blurry. And there's a sense of liminality of things not being quite one thing or another, something that's happened before, something you don't know what's going to happen after. So often the poses and the expressions, they're of that kind of strange time and space when you're in between. And in a way, that's kind of like a metaphor for a lot of us. We're in between physically from one moment to the next. We're in between so many different cultures. We're in between being younger and older. Even our gender, you know, 
who's to say what's male or female? There is there are clear physical differences in our genes and everything. But so much of it is culturally imposed. So things are, you know, changing all the time. So I'm I'm keen to explore, you know, a sense of networks of power as it being implicit in poses, gestures, facial expressions or figures who operate as protagonists or recipients within different social mores. So I think, I hope my images explore sexual identity and a rethinking of the male and the female gaze, voyeurism, you know, ideas about subservience or dominance relative to the viewer and the viewed, you know, the polarities between celebration or exploitation. And I'm interested in how the figures are oriented. I sometimes paint upside down figures right. and quite often they look as though they're on a kind of stage, on a, some kind of plinth or pedestal, like a sculpture. So, I, you know, it's kind of my ongoing exploration of the figure, the nude, including the nude figure, as well as clothed figures. For example, I'm doing a self-portrait wearing a sari, which I normally never, ever wear. Mm. Um, so, and also of other people, you know, in the city and so on. So I hope I'm kind of, what really interests me also is how to push the actual visual language of painting, how I'm not so interested in illustrating some kind of thing that people might expect of me, you know, illustrating things in a kind of ready-made language. Yeah. I'm interested in trying to explore and push the language further. Um, I mean, I've, I've got a lovely quotation here from Francis Bacon, if I can find it. Mm. Is there time? Oh, of to... course, of course, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, you know so, so much, Jay. I mean, you have so much knowledge about art and I'm just amazed. There's such a lot of depth in your um, understanding of art that... I can we can go on for the whole day, I think, and and it'll still not be enough. I'm really it would be a real luxury for me. Thank you so <laughs> so much to go on further. But there's a lovely quotation. I mean, um, I I you know I connect really connected with it. Um, so in an interview with David Sylvester, Francis Bacon said that. Most of Duchamp is figurative, but I think he made sort of symbols of the figurative. And he made, in a sense, a sort of myth of the 20th century. But in terms of making a shorthand of figuration, well, now, what personally I would like to do would be, for instance, to make portraits, which were portraits, but came out of things which really had nothing to do with what is called illustrational facts of the image. They would be made different, and yet they would give the appearance. To me, the mystery of painting today is how can appearance be made? I know it can be illustrated. I know it can be photographed. But how can this thing be made so you can catch the mystery of appearance within the mystery of the making? So, I, I mean, I really connect with that quotation. And 
I think, I mean, Francis Bacon's an amazing artist. He's very decisive. I take Liverpool very kindly invited me to do an in-conversation with um, Michael Pepiat, who was one of his lifelong friends and a you know major writer on Bacon. And to be honest, I had barely to say two or three phrases just as prompts for Michael Pepiat to launch into these amazingly extensive kind of uh, retelling of um, anecdotes as well as ideas. It was wonderful. But um, I don't know how I got onto that. I feel more than artists. You yeah. guys are all you, you people are thinkers, and then it's it, it's and your your paintings are an extension of your interior. Yeah, and I feel yeah. I think I just about... remembered why I've mentioned Michael the the in conversation I did. I, Michael Pepiat said that Bacon was very decisive, so that if he knew that something wasn't working, he would discard it really quickly. Whereas, you know, I often wish I could be decisive. Partly it's because I don't like to throw canvases away. I just rework them yeah. and rework them and rework them. But also Bonnard, I saw a show by Bonnard and I read, found there was one painting. I think it took him, I don't know, something like 20 years to do. He was always going around with his little palette even after he'd sold paintings or they were in museums and when no one was looking or he, he would touch them up and just carry on with them. So I work in a more improvisatory way, like, like Bonnard with my paintings. I'm, they're forever changing. And then a few paintings I really regret going over, but there you go. But most of the time it doesn't matter. But I can see the excitement in you for um, with the new ideas and the new uh, uh, things that are coming up. And uh, it, this is I, I just I'm looking forward to actually seeing your paintings in the flesh and having a, oh. going to one of your exhibitions. And I hope that happens soon. And big things are in store for you. And it's been such a pleasure. I, I can't tell you how amazing I've learned so much from this conversation. I'm going to take notes of all the names <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, all the stuff that you've said. Um, thank you so much for spending uh, all this time with uh, with me. And and I will um, I would I will let you know when I share the link. And I think it will be a great pleasure. And uh, people will learn a lot from this podcast.